Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I want every news organization on the planet to stop emailing me. I don't want to hear from you. It's enough already. Uh, you know, for example, I have a subscription to the New York Times. Suddenly, out of nowhere, I didn't ask for this. I'm getting the New York Times morning summary, the New York Times evening summary, uh, the New York Times climate letter. Okay, if I wanted it, I would ask for it. Washington Post sends me not only the best stories of the week or the day or whatever, but uh, the best food recipes. I'm not making your recipes. And on and on and on. Look, I get it. Companies are trying to push their news on you. If you're already a subscriber, you're probably checking their sites. You don't need the push. Now, if they wanted to do, yeah, you want to opt into getting this newsletter or that newsletter, sure. In fact, the Washington Post uh, automatically started sending me one of its columnists, who I like but don't really need in my inbox every day. And so I went to the extra steps of opting out of that. And then, you know, between that and uh, every time you buy something, would you rate this product? Would you rate our service? Or your service is horrible. Leave me alone. <laughs> I know I sound like a the get-off-my-lawn guy, but it's just, you know, my inbox gets so cluttered that it's like you can't concentrate on anything else. Um, Lawrence O'Donnell of MSNBC had a big exclusive uh, the other night with Kamala Harris when she made a little news about uh, pres- uh, former President Trump's rhetoric. But it must have been very disappointing for him because he was going to sit down with her in person and then he tested positive for COVID. So then he had to do it remotely. Uh, bad timing for Lawrence and I hope he feels better. But um, it is another reminder that this is a season where COVID not as bad, obviously, in previous years, but seems to be surging. Now, the Harvard saga is, is not over. Unbelievable. Harvard University facing mountain questions over, oh, I don't know, possible plagiarism in the work of its president, Claudine Gay, said yesterday it found two additional instances of insufficient citation in her work, that according to the New York Times. These were in her 1997 doctoral dissertation. Harvard found duplicative language without appropriate attribution and said that Dr. Gay would request corrections. Now, of course, this is a woman who hung under her job despite her absolutely abysmal and disastrous testimony about anti-Semitism on campus. But then all this information came out about various works that she had plagiarized. You know, if a sophomore does this, you get kicked out of Harvard. But the president does it, and listen to this weasel language. 
inadequate citation. I'd, I'd love for a student to try that. Ah, you know, all it was was inadequate citation, sir. Um, I don't like this sentence in the Times story. The allegations have been driven by conservative media. I'm sorry, do liberal media not care if the president of one of our most famous universities improperly copies the language of others in scholarly work? And I don't understand how she's able to hang on to her job. I mean, this is just a humiliation for Harvard. And they're just excusing it. So CNN has had a lot of owners. Started out with Ted Turner, of course, and then AOL bought it. The most recent owner is Warner Brothers Discovery. Uh, A couple days ago, the head of Warner Brothers Discovery, David Zasloff, met with the CEO of Paramount, Bob Bakish, in New York, to discuss a possible merger. I'm reading from a piece in Axios. Uh, Charlie Gasparino on Fox also had a piece of this. And they don't seem to have made it a secret because they were meeting for hours. Zasloff has also spoken to Shari Redstone. She owns Paramount's parent company. She, I think, has signaled that she might be open to selling. She's rather elderly at this point. Okay, Warner Brothers market value, about $29 billion. Paramount, which has a lot of debt, just over $10 billion. And then, according to Axios, they discuss ways their companies could complement one another. The two streaming services could merge, Paramount Plus and Max. Um, it's unclear uh, whether this would be allowed by federal regulators, but the Axios story says, oh, here's an interesting line that I almost read over. Um, CBS News could be combined with CNN to create a global news powerhouse. But the thinking is that since Warner Brothers doesn't own a broadcast network, this could pass regulatory scrutiny. Now, this is fascinating. Suddenly, out of the blue, not quite out of the blue, but getting louder, there's a big push to get Chris Christie to quit the presidential race before the New Hampshire primary. Here's Politico. Some top Republicans in New Hampshire say Christie is now positioned to help pave the way for Trump's nomination by siphoning votes away from Nikki Haley. Monumental problem for Nikki Haley says a former RNC committee man from New Hampshire. Uh, CBS poll says among those supporting Christie, 75% said they were also considering Haley, far greater than the percentages who were picking Ron DeSantis, 24%, Trump, 9%, or Ramaswamy, 10%. Now, here's how I know that these stories didn't just magically appear and then somebody's pushing them. Today, the same day, very similar story in the Washington Post. After gaining little traction outside New Hampshire with his straight talk campaign centered on preventing Trump from returning to power, Christie is now accused by some Republican operators of increasing that possibility by refusing to clear the way for alternatives now seen as more viable, most notably Haley. Christie forcefully rejected that logic in an interview with the Washington Post, arguing he is the only major Republican candidate 
who is making the case every day that Trump is unfit to be president. That is true. And he has made it the central focus of his campaign. And he's at about 10 or 11% in New Hampshire. But that's not going to get him a win or anything close to it in New Hampshire. So it's a tough decision for Christie to make. Uh, knowing his determination, I don't think he's going to drop out um, until after New Hampshire. And that, you know, I mean, these Republicans have a, a reason to worry. But someone out there, not accusing anybody, is pushing this story. All right, which brings us to number one. Well, you know what I'm going to talk about. The second day stories about the Colorado Supreme Court ruling knocking Donald Trump off the ballot. Uh, New York Times, it's been obvious for months that politics and the law were going to bump into each other, bump into one another in the 2024 campaign. But that awkward bump has turned into a head-on collision. It now seems clear that the courts, especially the Supreme Court, could dramatically shape the contours of the election. The nine justices have already agreed to review the scope of an obstruction statute central to the federal indictment of Donald Trump on the January 6th related charges. They could soon become entangled with his efforts to dismiss those charges with sweeping claims of executive immunity and trying to rid himself of a gag order. The court also could be called upon to weigh in on a series of civil lawsuits seeking to hold Trump accountable for the violence at the Capitol. So, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. I now feel like when I do my show or do this podcast that, you know, half it's like a law seminar because there's so many appeals and cases and rulings going on. I'm sure for the average person who doesn't obsess on this stuff, it's a little hard uh, to follow it all. Sometimes I have to remember, okay, is this the gag order in the civil case? Or is this the gag order in the other case? Uh, this happens at a particularly vulnerable moment for the court, that is SCOTUS. Uh, being assaulted for, or sailed, I should say, I don't want to use the word assaulted, for being guided by an overt political ideology, some questions about personal finances and links to wealthy backers for the justices. It's kind of a no-win situation. Now, here is a column by Jim Garrity in the Washington Post. I have a hard time believing that Jack Smith or any other prosecutor forgot or overlooked the possibility of an insurrection charge because this is what the Colorado court relied on. Concluded that under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, you'll be hearing a lot about that, Donald Trump is started in an insurrection. I mentioned Joe Biden the other day. I said he made his remarks off camera. That turned out not to be right. I thought it was on Air Force One. It was when he got off the plane. He said, I'm not going to comment on the Colorado ruling, but certainly, Trump certainly supported an insurrection. No question about it. None. Zero, says the president. What Garrity says is that the reason Smith didn't bring the charges, he doesn't think he has enough evidence or he doesn't think he can get a conviction. You don't get to kick a guy off the ballot because you think he has committed a crime, but can't prove it. If that's going to be the new standard going forward, we should expect state Supreme Courts in red states to kick President Biden off the ballot because 
The payments from foreign businessmen to members of Biden's family stink worse than the swamp water that apparently all our national monuments are built upon. I told you about that yesterday. The Supreme Court will probably strike down this decision, says Garrity. I agree with that. Um, But even that common sense conclusion is going to be met with a lot of arguments that this is a right-wing court protecting Trump. Well, the Colorado court is all Democrats, four out of seven of whom said, obviously, insurrection, that means under the Constitution he cannot hold public office again. Now, here's uh, Washington Post columnist and editorial page staffer Ruth Marcus, uh, a committed liberal, who comes out against the Colorado ruling. You know, I'm sure she would love to see, I know she would love to see Donald Trump lose the election, but she says that this part of the 14th Amendment should not be used to prevent Americans from voting to elect the candidate of their choice. So some people are moving beyond partisan leanings, and Ruth Marcus has a law degree, and she says the best outcome for the court and the country would be a unanimous court, supreme that is, to clear the way for Trump to run. The court needs to step in because of chaos. Beyond what I think is the unconvincing avenue of text-parsing arguments about the meaning of office and officer, the justices have two major off-ramps at their disposal. One, whether Section 3 is self-executing, which means in non-legal language, does there have to be a law passed to have it take effect. So back in 1869, one year after the Fourth Amendment, 14th Amendment was adopted, the Chief Justice Salmon Chase um, ruled or signed the majority opinion that Section 3 of the Amendment requires enabling legislation. These were the days when the case involved a formerly enslaved black man who argued that his conviction for assault was void because the presiding judge had served in the Confederacy and was therefore disqualified from holding judicial office. Always just interesting what you turn up uh, when you uncover the rocks of history. Second Avenue, says Marcus, for the justices to conclude that Trump's speech is protected by the First Amendment. But there is no world, she says, in which justices are going to empower states to throw Trump off their ballots. This should be unanimous, as in Brown versus Board of Ed, not the splintered party line body of Bush v. Gore, which you all remember vividly, I am sure, in the year 2000. Ah, the Colorado Republican Party says it will withdraw from the GOP primary if Donald Trump remains off the ballot. Saying on X, the party will instead convert to a pure caucus system if this is allowed to stand. I don't see how that gets around the potential legal problem, but that's what the party in Colorado is saying. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Now, here's an interesting bit of history, speaking of looking at the past. 
Washington Post saying Trump is suffering under a standard that he himself attempted to set for America's political system. Quotes Trump is talking about eliminating the rights of Colorado voters to vote for the candidate of their choice. But not only did Trump try to overturn the will of voters after the 2020 election, back in March of 2011, he raised the birther issue against Barack Obama. Birther issue is very important because if you're not born in the United States, you can't be president. You're not allowed to be a president if not born in this country, he said on the Today Show. 2016 Iowa caucuses. Trump pushed the idea, I'd actually forgotten this, that Ted Cruz should be disqualified because he was born in Canada. Oh, and because he purposely cheated in the Iowa caucuses. There was no evidence of that. He was born in Canada, but obviously he has United States citizenship. Later in the 2016 campaign, dozens of times, Donald Trump said Hillary Clinton shouldn't be allowed to run because of the controversy about her private email server. She shouldn't be allowed to president. She shouldn't be allowed, he said, just for election day. I'm telling you, she should not be allowed to run for president based on her crimes, which, of course, the former first lady had not been convicted of any crimes, and nor has Donald Trump at this point. Oh, here's a quickie poll by YouGov America. 54% of Americans and even 24% of Republicans approve of the Colorado court's move to kick Trump off the ballot. But if you look at a broader index of partisanship here, it's 84% of Democrats, 48% of independents, and, you know, almost one in five Republicans, which is not nothing. But, I, you know, it, it was taken so quickly. It's not a massive sample, but it's taken so quickly that I think we would need to see more polls to see what the country thinks. And by the way, it doesn't really matter what the country thinks because the question is legal. Does the Colorado Supreme Court have the power to do this? Now, in stark contrast to Trump immediately appealing to the Supreme Court after the Colorado court ruling, which is every right to do, and which has to come quickly before the ballots are printed in early January, In a separate case involving the former president, he asked the Supreme Court, the same Supreme Court, to put off a decision on a question about whether he has immunity, absolute immunity for actions he took as president. The brief says that this should be resolved in a cautious, deliberative manner, not at breakneck speed. He told the justice not to rush to decide the issues with reckless abandon. Now, what's the game here? This is one Trump wants to slow down because if SCOTUS rules and supports special counsel Jack Smith, the trial could start in March and there could be, well, not only would he be in a courtroom during the thick of the primaries, but he could be convicted or not conceivably before the election. But in the Colorado case, speed is in Trump's interest. So that one, he wants SCOTUS to take right away. And by the way, Jack Smith is just on the opposite of this. Of course, Jack Smith is trying to rush things or at least not have them be slowed down 
because he wants to see if he can get a conviction of the former president before November of 2024. Number two, what's Joe Biden's reaction to dealing with all this? Polls have showed him trailing Trump. Protesters are demanding that Biden call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Groups of key voters, including young people and voters of color, have suggested they might not support Biden or they might just stay home. So, as the Times tells us, what is the president seeking re-election to do? What should he do? Stay the course. Where have we heard that before? In past campaigns. Uh, several officials in the Biden campaign and the White House say that the unflattering polls and criticism from key constituents over Gaza, over immigration, which is still holding up any kind of deal to get uh, military aid to Ukraine, are not enough to shift Biden's strategy, which is compare his agenda with policies favored by Republicans. Uh, Biden and Harris will turn up the volume beginning in 2024, which of course begins in about 10 days. Today's the shortest day of the year, by the way. Just apropos of nothing. Uh, It's the winter solstice. The polls and the reams of what officials see as negative news coverage, um, it is negative news coverage, have at times frustrated everyone, including Biden. This is the Times catching up on various stories about Biden's frustration. They're not freaking out, said former Senator Ted Kaufman, a confidant from Delaware to Biden. When you signed up for this thing, you didn't sign up to be at 80% of the polls. These are genuine veterans, and they're picked because of their ability to be calm in difficult times, referring to those working for the Biden campaign. Although members of Congress have not yet secured a deal, I was talking earlier about the aid for Israel, Ukraine, and some fixing of the border, the fact that the White House has signaled openness to some of the border policies has drawn enormous criticisms from progressives in Biden's own party. File this under the heading of you can't make everybody happy. And that's the challenge of being president. You know, Biden's a staunch supporter of Israel, although he has been trying and trying to urge restraint unsuccessfully so far on Bibi Netanyahu. But the Democratic Party, much of it, particularly the younger part of it, is not with him. So here's a piece in Politico, media columnist Jack Schaefer, saying the press is just getting all these Biden polls wrong. Biden, every politician, he writes, thinks he should be hailed by the people. And asking his people to make it so, Biden resembles the standard politician. What Biden overlooks, as does much of the press, writing about his unpopularity, is that he was never a wildly popular figure nationally, so why should he be now? His telling his staff to find a way to fix this is probably as doable as unscrambling an egg. Signs of Biden's inherent popularity were present from the very beginning, just two weeks into his term. The New York Times noted that while he had a broad positive approval rating, his didn't come close to that of Barack Obama on Inauguration Day. Well, very different. I mean, Joe Biden won in substantial measure because he wasn't Donald Trump. And Obama, at the beginning, was seen as this inspiring figure. In fact, Biden's proof rating lower than any of his predecessors, except Trump, at a similar time. After six months, the honeymoon was over, 
and Biden's slide began, now an average of 38% favorable, which is just horrible for an incumbent president. Uh, And then we go along here, and we have um, the press blaming different things on by, for our Biden's lack of popularity. COVID pandemic, backlash over the Afghanistan withdrawal, growing political polarization. The AP attributed it to a slew of challenges, uh, including legislative drama over his economic policies, trouble at the border. COVID, Afghanistan, the border is a mess. It needs to be fixed. You've seen the pictures. It is basically an open border. The trouble was in the stars, not necessarily with Joe Biden, according to the press. Then inflation was blamed for Biden's bad numbers. But now that inflation is down, that doesn't work. In July, New York Magazine said Biden's unpopularity was mysterious. And speculated that the problem might be that while he's delivered material improvement to voters, he failed to address the widespread sense of despair. And Vox saying more recently that voters have come to doubt Biden's competence and tied that to his age. See, my theory is it's all tied to his age. Not all of it in the sense that if Biden was 61 and not 81, would he be a wildly popular figure? Probably not. He's a sort of a grinded-out politician who works for relationships, not the world's most inspiring speaker, and he's got to put that up against Trump. Could it be that it's not policy or circumstances that voters are rejecting, but that it's Biden? That's the question that Schaefer asks. Number three, let's turn to the war, which we've touched on briefly here. Israeli military saying yesterday it had secured control of an area in the center of Gaza City where Hamas government and military leaders have been operating and living, uncovering a large network of tunnels. Well, we knew about the tunnels, but this is kind of taking it a little bit further. The complex, both above and below ground, the Israeli military says in a statement, was a center of power for Hamas's military and political wings said the uh, military infrastructure was located in the direct vicinity of commercial stores, government buildings, civilian residences, and a designated school for deaf children. That's how Hamas has been hiding. That's how the terrorists embed with civilians and put their lives at risk. And many have died. Not saying that Israel's dumb bombs and other things haven't contributed greatly to the huge and undeniable humanitarian crisis where there just isn't enough food and water for all the people who've been displaced. So the top offices of Hamas political leader Yahya Sinwar and its military head were connected by an underground tunnel shaft. Um, But these are two of the terrorists that Israel would very much like to capture or kill, and has not been able to do so. NBC has a story, an exclusive about what Chinese President Xi told Biden during their recent meeting in San Francisco, that Beijing will reunify with Taiwan. 
will unify with mainland China and Taiwan. But the timing hasn't been decided, according to three current and former U.S. officials, that China's preference is to take Taiwan peacefully, not by force. And when U.S. military leaders say that Xi plans to take Taiwan in 2025 or 2027, uh, the Chinese leader is saying that that's wrong because he hasn't set a time frame. China also asked our president to make a public statement saying the U.S. supports China's goal of peaceful unification with Taiwan, which, of course, Biden's not going to do because that's not U.S. policy. In fact, if there was a military incursion against the breakaway province of Taiwan, U.S. presidents, one after the other, have said that they would intervene, although that would be a very difficult military situation. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four, the 118th Congress is on track to be one of the most unproductive in modern history. A lot of that has to do with the lack of a speaker for a while, the Republican infighting. Just 20 bills, according to Axios, have been passed by both chambers and signed into law. That's far below even previous unproductive years, first years, when, with Clinton and Obama in the White House, Congress passed 70 to 73 laws, just 20 laws. And most of them, you know, are small ball. Measures to rename the Veterans Affairs Clinics, to mint a coin commemorating the 250th anniversary of the Marine Corps. So, this part is true. Congress just hasn't gotten much done. Either other Kevin McCarthy, other than avert a government shutdown or avert a default, or under new speaker Mike Johnson. Number five, looking here at a front page story in the print edition of the Wall Street Journal that I have missed online. And it kind of harkens back to my rant at the top of the show about everybody, uh, you know, news organizations and others emailing me, what's your opinion of this and that. It leads off by talking about Lucy Joseph. She was looking for some lodging in Montenegro. She found a youth hostel that had all these high ratings from very satisfied customers. That should have been the first red flag, says the 23-year-old. All of them were five stars. Now, how can this be? Well, according to the journal, reality was a little bit different. The dorm room smelled damp. The The hostel provided a certain touch of home in the sense that guests were expected to clean their own bathrooms. But later, she felt pressed to say everything had been terrific. After she checked out, the manager messaged Joseph on Instagram. And Joseph said, was asked asked for a positive review. She wrote an honest, mediocre one, giving 5.7 out of 10 stars. Said she was really disappointed. But apparently, these reviews are important. And, ah, here's the twist. Those glowing reviews can be typed out under pressure or for a reward, 
Well, this doesn't smell right. I have that myself when you go on, well, a different situation, I guess I would say. You know, you're trying to find um, some product and you have all these people saying, this is the best thing I've ever purchased. It's incredible. It'll change your life. And then a few more comments down, you read, this is the worst piece of junk. I can't believe I fell for this. Do not buy it. And I'm thinking, okay, is the truth somewhere in between or what's going on here? So, after her review posted, the host of this, uh, you know, lodging facility sent her multiple messages reviewed by the Wall Street Journal asking for a rewrite. Well, just from one person saying her take had hindered the ho uh, hostel's chances of winning an award. I'm sorry you felt like that in our place, but that low of a rating really hurt. Please let me know if there's any way you can remove it. I would even compensate a night if that is what's needed. So in order to get a positive review from an unsatisfied customer, sure, come back to the hotel and we'll give you a free night's stay. Well, Joseph said, nah, I'm not going to do that. I don't feel right about it. I ended up having to block him because he kept messaging me. Good reviews, duh, mean higher sales. You get a three or four star rating, your, your sales are three times harder, three times higher than if you get a one star rating. So this is sort of international in scope. In Berlin, when a woman named Ebony asked a restaurant server to open a nicer bottle of tequila than the brand normally available, he hesitated, then made an offer. He would let them have a better brand of tequila in their happy hour drinks if they gave the restaurant a positive review on Google. And the woman's review praised the Mexican eatery's yummy food and said they really enjoyed their evening. But in reality, this woman says in an interview, the drinks were strong. I don't know how many classes of tequila there are, but obviously these people care. But the food tasted of preservatives. Mexican food is not that great here, and this place is particularly bad. So what we're talking about here is, you know, kind of rigging the system, game playing, uh, pressuring people, offering free hotel stays, offering better tequila, I mean, look, if you drink enough of the better tequila, you're probably going to write a pretty good drunken review. Um, all of which shows you like how crucial this has become to a lot of businesses. But some of these tactics are just unseemly. Uh, it almost feels like trading favors for positive press should be against the law. I don't know that anybody would bother to prosecute such a case, but clearly... These businesses are doing everything they can to get insincere fake reviews that look like absolutely fabulous reviews. And it seems to be working. So says the Wall Street Journal. Hey, thanks for uh, sticking with us here on the podcast. I had that story put aside for a couple days, couldn't get in with all the news. But I did want to share it with you because, you know, this is stuff we all go through. Every time I buy anything or just go somewhere, how would you rate our service? How would you rate our, your transaction? And you know they don't want you to trash the place. 
no matter what it may be. More good stuff tomorrow as we head into the holidays. I'll see you then with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.